Welcome to the teaching ministry at Magnolia's First. We hope the next few minutes will help you take your next steps on your faith journey. And we would love to help you take those next steps. Just head over to m1bc.org and fill out the connect form and a pastor will get in touch with you very soon. Or you can text us at 281-343-3033. Well, good morning, Magnolia's First. Oh, you can do better than that. Good morning, Magnolia's First. Uh, It's so good to see all of you here in the worship center. We welcome those who are watching online. We have people really throughout the nation who watch us on a regular basis. We're grateful to the Lord for that. I want to begin the message with kind of a poll, so go with me here. How many of you are right-handed? Would you raise your hand? Okay, thank you, hands down. How many of you are left-handed? Okay, thank you. How many of you didn't know which hand to raise because you're ambidextrous? Raise both hands. Yeah, a few few of you out there. Can I I just tell you I admire you, but I don't understand you? Uh, My good friend Steve Duffy, who is in heaven now, was my golfing partner for many years, and Steve would hit all of his woods and his irons with his right hand, but then when we would make it onto the green, (laughs) finally, uh, he would putt with his left hand. And I never could really identify with that because I can barely scratch my nose with my left hand, but he could write with either hand. He was ambidextrous. Our older daughter, Jennifer, when she was a little girl, would sometimes sit at the table and begin to cry because she couldn't figure out which hand to use to pick up her fork. Well, today she's a married mother of five and a successful real estate agent, so I think she figured it out. But... I I just can't understand being ambidextrous. Well, let's take that to the next level. How about what if you were two different beings at the same time? Two different beings at the same time. Well, this morning in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we're going to unpack one of the most profound and deepest spiritual truths of the New Testament. The spiritual reality that during his time on earth, Jesus was both fully man and fully God. If you've been with us in our series in Philippians, or if you're familiar with that New Testament book, you know it was a letter written by the Apostle Paul when he was in prison in Rome. And he would later be released from this imprisonment, and he would do more work for the kingdom of God, planting churches in the first century, and then he would be imprisoned again by Rome, this time in a dungeon, and he would be executed from that imprisonment. But while he writes the letter of Philippians, he doesn't know if he's going to be released or executed. And so he says in Philippians 1, and we looked at this last week, beginning with verse 21, Paul said, for to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. 
But for your sakes, he says to the Philippians, it is better that I continue to live. And so in the closing of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, he urges them. He urges them to live faithfully. He urges them to live in unity, to continue to advance Christ and his gospel in that early era of the church, to not only have right doctrine, but to have real love. And so if you have a Bible, open it to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking at those 11 verses, and, and I'll be pulling in different scriptures from other portions uh, of the Word of God, but they'll all be on the screen. Our main text today is Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And he begins by asking those early believers some questions that we need to be asked as well. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Can you, can you feel what Paul is trying to ask here? He's saying, are you serious about this matter of the Christian life? Are you serious about walking with Jesus? Are you sincere in your love for Jesus? Do you really mean it when you say, I am a Christ follower? then here is what that should look like, he'll go on to say in verse 2. Here's what it should look like in a faith community such as Magnolia's First. Here is what it should look like as you relate to each other and function together for the good of the kingdom of God. Verse 2, if your answer is yes to all those questions in verse 1, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Let's just be honest. Magnolia's First is in a season of transition and change. And I don't say that to give any credit to Cindy and me as, as we have pastored this church for these three-plus decades, but simply just to state the obvious that things are going to be different to a degree. There is a transition coming, and transitions are tough. Change is hard. I've heard someone say the only people in a Baptist church that like change are the babies in the nursery. I don't even think that's right. (laughs) Change is hard, but it is vital that the church in seasons of transition and change Unite with one another because the enemy will seek to use it as a time to bring division. He will seek to, to, to drive wedges in between different groups in the church, especially a church as diverse as Magnolia's first. And so the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, and I say to you, don't let that happen. Don't fall for his tactics. Don't let division come into this church. Don't divide up into camps with your own agendas, but pull together 
unify. God does not have a divided will for this church. He has one will. He has one pastor that he has picked out. I don't know who it is. You don't know who it is, but God knows who it is. He has one plan for this church, and it may be different than we would even imagine, but God's will must become clear to this body. And so how this church loves one another and how they relate to one another in unity during this time of transition will impact the witness of this church and the advancement of the gospel in this community for decades. So we must get it right. If I may put it this way, unity in his church matters greatly to God. It matters greatly. So collectively, that's the truth, but how does this filter down to you as an individual? How how does this narrow down into your own heart and your own life and your own walk with Christ? What does that even look like? Paul goes on to explain in verse 3. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Now, let's make this clear. God loves all people. Sometimes Christians act like God loves us and he doesn't like those people out there. No, God loves all people. But there are some things about people, even his own people, that God hates. Let me take you quickly to Proverbs 8, 13. Look at it on the screen. All who fear the Lord will hate evil. Will hate what? Evil. Therefore, I hate pride and arrogance, corruption and perverse speech. Can you see what a contrast those words are to what Paul had said in verse 3? How different they are? Back in a former life, I, I used to be a worship pastor. I used to be what Dalton is, except I couldn't play the keyboard. But I married someone who could, so that was helpful. But I remember talking to the worship team and to the choir and to all of those who are a part of the worship ministry about the issue of humility before the Lord if you're going to lead in worship. Because I told them something I believe. When pride walks on the platform, the Holy Spirit walks off. It's not about wanting to be on stage. It's not about wanting to look good or sound good or impress somebody. And and when you step onto the platform, and I'm no perfect example of anything, but I will tell you this, every Sunday that I'm scheduled to preach, I pray, Lord, don't let it be about me. Let it be about your word and your spirit and your kingdom that it might transform your people. I appreciate all the kind words that people say to me. And those of you who would say unkind words, I appreciate that you keep those to yourself. (laughs) I'm human and you encourage me. But can I tell you, that's not what this is about. It's about the Word of God transforming my life and your life. And pride and arrogance have no place 
and those who would be a part of his church. And so back to our passage, verse 4, he says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Now, this is not even in my notes, but let me, just, let me just stop and be real transparent here. Magnolia's First is a diverse church. We have people that come to this service that love the band and the instruments and the worship songs, and, and it, it touches your heart. But at 9.30 in this room, there's a bunch of folks that are not too crazy about that kind of music. But they love the old hymns. We sang this morning in that service, a mighty fortress is our God. And that touches their hearts. But you know what? You're worshiping the same God. You're loving the same Jesus. In 11 o'clock over in the venue, we have people worshiping in Spanish, and they're on fire for Jesus. But most of what they sing, I don't understand. But the Lord does. This is a diverse church, and it's a church that the enemy would like to say, okay, you better get behind your group and get what you want for this transition and whoever the new pastor may be. Don't think about it in terms of personal desires. Think about it in terms of what is good for the kingdom, what will advance the mission of this church to engage every generation to become Christ followers. How do we do that? That kind of attitude is unheard of in this culture that is so narcissistic and all about me, me, me. Well, Paul tells us in verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Does that not shake you a little bit? You must have a Jesus attitude. Well, Paul, what does that even mean? What, what does that look like? For you see, to be a Christ follower means that you seek his power and you seek his wisdom to think like him and to act like him. And Paul goes on to give us insight as to what the attitude of Christ was. Verse 6, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. In other words, to hold on to, to keep his mind. Paul is saying here, Jesus was, Jesus is, and Jesus forever shall be one with and equal to God the Father. Wrap your mind around that. He is God. This passage that we often read at Christmas time is appropriate to tie in with Philippians 2. John begins his gospel in this way. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. Translated word there is the Greek word logos, and it is, it is the living word. It is Jesus. I love the paraphrase of the living Bible of these first two verses. Look at it on the screen. I love this. Before anything else existed, there was Christ with God. He has always been alive and is himself God. 
He created everything there is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. Can you, can you grasp the majesty and glory, glory of his deity? And yet, as we go back to our text, Philippians 2 verse 7 begins, instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He emptied himself, some translations say. He voluntarily relinquished some of his divine attributes that he had before time began, before there was time. He relinquished those. He relinquished his omnipresence. He relinquished his sovereignty. In his human incarnation, he could not be in all places at all times. In his mission to redeem sinful human beings like us, he relinquished his sovereignty, his will to do the will of the Father, to finish his divine plan, to ransom us from our sin. And yet, though he was fully human, he did things no human could do. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He fed multitudes. He walked on water. He knew things no human could know. When he encountered the woman at the well, he knew all about her history. When he walked through town and he looked up into a tree that a short man named Zacchaeus had climbed in order to see him, he called him by name. When he celebrated that last meal with his disciples, he knew that Judas would betray him. He was fully man and fully God. Though he surrendered willingly parts of his deity, he still was divine and holy. I love the way Paul put it in another letter, this one to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 9. Listen, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Try to wrap your mind around this. Listen, listen closely. Though he was capable of sin, he never yielded to sin so that he could become the sinless sacrifice for your sin and my sin. That's deep, so I want you to hear it again. Now focus with me. Think about this. Though he was capable of sin, some people say, oh, Christ could not have sinned. He, he was divine. He could not have sinned. But the Bible says he was tempted in all ways as we are tempted. If you can't sin, there's no such thing as temptation. Though he was capable of sin, he never yielded. He could have, but he never yielded to sin. Why? So that he could become that perfect lamb of God, that sinless sacrifice for your sin and your sin and your sin and my sin. Back to Philippians 2, verse 7 ends. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God 
and died a criminal's death on a cross. What humility. What love. What unselfish sacrifice he demonstrated for us on the cross. And then he validated his deity by being raised from the dead and ascending back to his throne in heaven. Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, which is known as the resurrection chapter, these words, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Here it is. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. But here's the beautiful part. That's not the end of the story. We are not yet at the end of the story of Jesus Christ because here's what Paul said to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Look on the screen. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. Can you picture that? Can you see that? It has not happened yet, but it shall happen someday. John got a vision of that as he wrote Revelation, and in Revelation 1-7, he envisions it, and he says, look, he comes with the clouds of heaven, and everyone shall see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. It means they will bow in subjection before him. Yes, amen, hallelujah. Can I get an amen? What a day that shall be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. Paul was in prison, but he was preaching the gospel of Jesus. And so Paul said, since he died that criminal's death for us, back to our text, Philippians 2 verse 9, therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name, we sang of that name earlier, gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are multitudes today that will not confess Jesus, that ridicule us for our faith, that think we are silly, stupid, weak people to believe in such a myth. But I tell you, my friends, one day they shall bow before him. One day there will be no more agnostics. There will be no more atheists. There will be no more cynics or skeptics or doubters. On that day that he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. 
So how do we live this out? Glorious truth from, from Paul's letter, but what do we do with it? How do, how, do, how do we put it into action? I want to challenge you with three questions, and then we're done. Here's the first question. Would you pray diligently and work hard to maintain unity and harmony in God's church as you seek his will together? Magnolia's first is a crown jewel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful body with different ages and different worship styles and different languages and different generations and different opinions. But it is God's church. It is his church. Will you be willing to set aside your own preferences and be a part of a unified church that seeks nothing more, nothing less, nothing else than the will of God. Remember these words that Paul used when he, when he challenged the Philippian church? Let me tell you a few you heard recently. Tender, compassionate, agreeing with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. Question number two, would you consider all that Christ sacrificed for you and allow it to awaken a deeper love for him in your heart? If you hear nothing else I say today, hear this. If your idea of the Christian life is uh, that, that you are obligated, that you've got to do more to make God pleased with you, that, that, that you have duty to fulfill, if that is your core idea of the Christian life, you don't understand what it really means. Because if you serve the Lord or try to live for the Lord out of a sense of obligation or duty or ought to, you will get tired and you will give up. But if you walk with the Lord in a love relationship that you cannot help but do what is his will because you love him so deeply and you're so eternally grateful for what he did for you, that, my friend, lasts a lifetime. Will you? Will you allow what he did for you to stir in you a deeper love and gratitude? One final question. Would you allow the certainty of his return? Do you believe Jesus is coming again? All right, then would you allow the certainty of his return to stir in you a greater burden for those who are not Christ followers? Here's what I want you to think about. What if Jesus were to return today? It may not be for another century. It may not be for another 20 centuries, or it could be today. What if he were to return today? There would be many people that you know and care about who would not face him as their Savior, Lord, and Master. They would face him as the eternal judge who must pronounce judgment on unrepentant sin. And they would be eternally separated from a God who loved them so much he sent his only son. Will you allow the certainty of Jesus' imminent 
return to stir in you a greater burden to live out the gospel and when he gives opportunity to speak the gospel to them so that they might be saved. What if Jesus were to come today? Let me make it more personal. Would you be ready? Have you come to that place where you trusted in him? Are you certain that you have stepped across the line of faith and become a Christ follower? If you're not, you can be today. For in a moment, we will begin a brief time of prayer and invitation. And if you're not certain you're a Christ follower, I urge you to come and come quickly and settle that for today and eternity. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we close this service, if there is a single human being, either here in this room or watching online, that does not know for sure that they belong to you, Lord, may they settle that today, for by grace are you saved through faith. Help them to be willing to step up, step forward, and put their faith in Jesus. We ask it in his name. And in the spirit of prayer, would you stand with me, please? Our deacons and their wives make their way to the front, both here and in the balcony. And if you need to pray with someone, they're here to pray with you. And if you need to take a step in your spiritual journey, just say to them, I need to take the next step. And they'll help you do that. If you're sick, come. Let us anoint you and pray for your healing.